Chapter Five of the Mystery of the Pinckney Draft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Pinckney Draft by Charles C. Knott. Chapter Five, Madison as an Advocate. At this day, Madison is regarded as one of the chief statesmen in the group of leading framers of the Constitution, but his best appreciated work was keeping the only record which we have of that august assembly. He, who dealt with the great questions of the hour, may not have been aware how much good work the Pinckney draft was doing in an unnoticed way. Madison spared no effort to make his journal complete, and no little time in doing so. He copied and inserted in it the Virginia resolutions and the New Jersey resolutions and he also inserted Pinckney's long speech of the 25th of June. And yet he did not procure, and apparently did not even read, and certainly did not insert in his journal Pinckney's plan or draft. He seems to have felt sadly a certain self-conviction of this, and to have realized the fact that the omission of the Pinckney draft from his record was an irretrievable error. To a man holding the author of the draft in contempt, it must have seemed preposterous in 1831 for the shade of Pinckney to stalk upon the historic stage and say, I formulated the Constitution. It was my hand that sketched its outline, leaving it to the members of the convention, myself among the number, to change its provisions and modify its terms my draft was changed and modified and the conflicting views of the framers were welded together by notable compromises and persuasive arguments but nevertheless i contributed more of form and substance more of detail and language to the instrument known as the constitution of the united states than any other man accordingly madison while he closed his lips as a witness rallied his failing forces as an advocate and proceeded to give from time to time first to one correspondent and then to another and finally to the people of the united states in a note to accompany his journal when published all the reasons he could marshal from the written record of the case why the draft in the state department was an impossible verity at what time the Pinckney draft was first brought to Madison's attention I have not been able to discover, but on the 5th of May, 1830, Mr. Jared Sparks had been spoken or written to on the subject, for he then replied to Madison, writing from Washington, Since my return I have conversed with Mr. Adams concerning Charles Pinckney's draft of a constitution. He says it was furnished by Mr. Pinckney. Among Madison's papers there is also a memorandum entitled For Mr. Paulding, in which he says, Much curiosity and some comment have been exerted by the marvelous identities in a plan of government proposed by Charles Pinckney in the convention of 1787, as published in the journals with the text of the Constitution as finally agreed to. This memorandum is not dated, but is placed chronologically before a letter to Mr. J. K. Paulding 
dated April, 1831. On the 21st of June, 1831, he wrote to Jared Sparks, May I ask you to let me know the result of your correspondence with Charleston on the subject of Mr. Pinckney's draft of a constitution for the United States as soon as it is ascertained? On the 27th of June, he again wrote to Mr. Paulding, saying that he has received the volume of pamphlets containing that of Mr. Charles Pinckney. On the 25th of November, 1831, he again wrote to Mr. Sparks, The simple question is whether the draft sent by Mr. Pinckney to Mr. Adams and printed in the Journal of the Convention could be the same with that presented by him to the Convention on the 29th of May, 1787, and I regret to say that the evidence that that was not the case is irresistible. He instances the election of members of Congress by the people and the debate of June 6 as a sufficient example. But what decides the point is a letter from him to me dated March 28, 1789, a letter quoted by Gilpin of which I shall hereafter speak. Madison is guarded in all he says, but it is perfectly plain that while he wished to impress upon Paulding and Sparks the idea that the draft which Pinckney placed in the State Department was not the draft which he presented to the convention, he at the same time shrank from bringing on a controversy and from irritating the friends of Pinckney and forcing them into an investigation of the matter. It was, he evidently thought, a case of least said soonest mended. Madison was a sagacious and an experienced statesman who thoroughly understood his countrymen. Paulding and Sparks were his friends and followers. What he wished to have said passed into Gilpin's edition of the journal and Eliot's debates and gave the unquestioning world what he wished it to know and nothing more. The bridge which he built was safely passed over by the friends of Pinckney, and his method of destroying the good name of the draft without needlessly smirching the good name of Pinckney, and without inciting a controversy on the subject, has been so successful that for seventy years the draft has remained silently condemned, and no man has ever thought that an investigation could possibly reverse the accepted judgment. But on the 25th of April, 1835, William A. Dewar of New York wrote to Madison on the same subject and making the same inquiry. Judge Dewar was an eminent and brilliant member of the New York Bar and was then president of Columbia College and had been a well-known judge. For three years the ghost of Pinckney had not been raised to disturb the serenity of Madison's old age. Paulding and Sparks were his friends and were publicists. To them he could say little which would mean much, and for them his wishes and suggestions would be as binding as a law. Judge Dewar was not such a personal friend, and to him Madison must speak more freely. He was the possessor of a strong, inquiring mind, and to him Madison must so strongly state the case that it would seem unquestionable. 
he therefore with characteristic caution lingered until the fifth of june and then in his reply to judge door made a supreme if not final effort in this letter he brings up again the election of members by the people and pinckney's speech against it on the sixth of june other discrepancies he says will be found in a source also within your reach a pamphlet published by mr pinckney soon after the close of the convention pinckney's observations a friend who has examined and compared the two documents has pointed out the discrepancies noted below one conjecture explaining the phenomenon has been that mr pinckney interwove with the draft sent to mr adams passages as agreed to in the convention in the progress of the work and which after a lapse of more than thirty years were not separated by his recollection the discrepancies noted below are for the most part unimportant and will be examined hereafter but there is one which should be considered now for it affects madison more than it affects pinckney the discrepancy referred to is this in the observations pinckney says that in the best instituted legislatures of the states we find not only two branches of the legislature but in some a council of revision and he adds that he has incorporated this as a part of the system the friend says the pamphlet refers to the following provisions which are not found in the plan furnished to mr adams as forming a part of the plan presented to the convention the executive term of service seven years two a council of revision the statesmen who framed the constitution were sufficiently statesmen to know that what we call the veto power is not really a veto power and that the president unlike the crown is not a part of the law-making power the constitution of new york and not the constitution of great britain furnished the framers with the needed model by all of them it was known that the duty imposed and intended to be imposed upon the president was simply a duty of revision this has been a subject of judicial inquiry and the history of the veto provision may be stated in the words of the court at an early day june six this question of legislative power was determined by two decisive votes the convention adopted the principle of revision but being mindful as rutledge afterwards said that the judges ought never to give their opinion on a law till it comes before them and that they of all men are most unfit to be concerned in the revisionary council struck out randolph's convenient number of the national judiciary and left the power of revision to the president alone at a later day august sixth rutledge delivered in the report of the committee of detail the committee which embodied the previously ascertained view of the convention in a draft of the proposed constitution this section was couched in the very words of the constitution of new york every bill shall be presented to the president for his revision 
if upon such revision he approve it he shall sign it if upon such revision it shall appear to him improper for being passed into a law he shall return it on the fifteenth of august with this word revision three times repeated the thirteenth section of article six as amended was then agreed to by all the states it is this vote which is expressive of the final intent of the convention the verbal form in which the provision stands in the constitution was the work of the committee of style this revisionary business as madison calls it came up again and again appears and reappears in his journal from the sixth of june to the sixteenth of august was considered and reconsidered discussed and rediscussed the views of members swung between the extremes of absolute affirmative power in congress and absolute negative power in the president the proposition of hamilton to give the executive an absolute negative on the laws identical with the legislative power of the crown was rejected by ten states and supported by none the proposition of madison to add the judges of the supreme court in the revision of bills was likewise rejected at last the deliberations ended where they had begun the convention held fast to the principle of a council of revision and left the duties of the council in the president alone he was to be the council of revision in the words of madison the convention gave the executive alone without the judiciary the revisionary control on the laws unless overruled by two-thirds of each branch the united states v weill twenty nine court of claims reports five twenty three affirmed in la abra county v the united states one seventy five u s r four twenty three madison forgot that on the sixth of june south carolina had voted no on the motion to make a convenient number of the national judiciary a council of revision and that the vote was unanimous and he forgot that he had written with his own hand only eight days after pinckney had presented his draft to the convention mr pinckney had been at first in favor of joining the heads of the principal departments the secretary of war of foreign affairs etc in the council of revision he had however relinquished the idea from a consideration that these could be called on by the executive magistrate whenever he pleased to consult them he was opposed to an introduction of the judges into the business hunt's writings of madison three pages eighty nine and one eleven according to madison there was a discrepancy more than a discrepancy a flat contradiction between the observations and the draft in the state department the one saying explicitly that in some of the best instituted legislatures of the states there was a council of revision consisting of their executive and principal officers of government and that he had incorporated it as part of the system the other containing no such provision 
but, like the Constitution, giving the executive alone to the revisionary control of the laws. A superficial examination of the case would easily bring one to the conclusion that Pinckney, in 1818, omitted the Council of Revision from the draft for the State Department and copied from the Constitution the provision which the Convention framed. But the brief speech of Pinckney written down contemporaneously by Madison himself singularly vindicates both the observations and the draft, and leaves the latter stronger than it would have been if Madison's friend had not furnished the discrepancies noted below. The significance of the term Council of Revision was not known to the friend who arrayed the observations against the draft, and may not have been to Judge Durer. Neither did they know that in the judgment and understanding of the Convention, the President, with powers and duties defined as they were defined, was in legal effect the embodiment of the Council of Revision. But Madison knew it, or had known it. He too had personally participated in the work by his repeated efforts to engraft a Council of Revision on the Constitution, and his knowledge he had written down in his own words. Certainly he had no right to attack Pinckney through his unnamed friend. Certainly he had no right to leave Judge Durr to infer that the discrepancies noted below had received his scrutiny and approval. His journal he knew would be published. He was even then providing for it in his will, and when published it would contradict the discrepancy noted below and sustain the copy of the draft which he was attacking. The obvious explanation is that Madison's failing memory failed to record his own words. The convention gave the executive alone without the judiciary the revisionary control of the laws and pinckney's expressed declaration as early as the sixth of june that he had been at first in favor of a council of revision but for reasons stated had changed his mind and let it not be supposed that madison deliberately intended to deceive or that he was actuated by a malignant wish to deprive Pinckney of anything which he really believed was actually his due. Madison was then an old man, a very old man, in his eighty-fifth year, who had lived long and under the strain of great labors and intense excitements and withering anxieties. He was too old and too weary and too strongly prejudiced to change his mind in a minute or to reverse the judgment of many years by an investigation de novo the word phenomenon in his letter to judge durr reveals his state of mind and well explains his acts that the boy who had lodged in the same house with him in philadelphia the youngest member of the convention as he believed who was always talking about his draft, whom he disliked and underrated, that he should appear in 1818 as the chief contributor to, as the principal draftsman of, the Constitution of the United States, was indeed to him a phenomenon. 
It was something which he could not really believe. There is a note of contrition when he writes that the length of the document laid before the convention and other circumstances prevented my taking a copy at the time. He really believed that if he had procured and kept a copy of the draft which Pinckney laid before the convention, it would have blown to pieces this wild pretentious claim which he had laid before the Secretary of State. And Madison made a great mistake when he represented Pinckney to Judge Durr as an old man in 1818 whose waning recollection could not then separate the real from the fictitious in the draft which he had found among his papers in Charleston. For Madison, in 1835, when he wrote to Judge Durr, was twenty-five years older than Pinckney was when he sent the draft to Mr. Adams, and twenty-five years at that end of life is no small difference. Moreover, his memory from his youth up had been laden and taxed with great events. It was fifty-two years since he had made this despondent note in his record of the debate in Congress. Monday, March 17, 1783. A letter was received from General Washington enclosing two anonymous and inflammatory exhortations to the army to assemble for the purpose of seeking, by other means, that justice which their country showed no disposition to afford them. The steps taken by the general to avert the gathering storm, and his professions of inflexible adherence to his duty to Congress and to his country, excited the most affectionate sentiments towards him. By private letters from the army and other circumstances, there appeared good ground for suspecting that the civil creditors were intriguing in order to inflame the army into such desperation as would produce a general provision for the public debts these papers were committed to mr graham mr dyer mr clark mr rutledge and mr mercer the appointment of these gentlemen was brought about by a few members who wished to saddle with this embarrassment the men who had opposed the measures necessary for satisfying the army, viz., the half-pay and permanent funds, against one or other of which the individuals in question had voted. This alarming intelligence from the army added to the critical situation to which our affairs in Europe were reduced by the variance of our ministers with our ally, and to the difficulty of establishing the means of fulfilling the engagements, and securing the harmony of the United States, and to the confusions apprehended from the approaching resignation of the superintendent of finance, gave peculiar awe and solemnity to the present moment and oppressed the minds of Congress with an anxiety and distress which had been scarcely felt in any period of the Revolution. It was forty-eight years since Madison had served as the most laborious member of the Convention. It was twenty-eight years since he had seen the Navy disgraced by the surrender of the Chesapeake after firing only a single gun, a disgrace caused by the shameful negligence and incapacity of administrative officers at Washington while he was a member of Jefferson's cabinet. 
it was twenty-one years since he had seen the army disgraced by the negligence of his own secretary of war and the incapacity of a general of his own choosing and his capital burnt and himself and his cabinet fugitives and his heroic wife her friends and the military guard of a hundred men all gone resolutely refusing to leave the executive mansion until she had taken the precious portrait of washington from its frame to save it from the ignominy of capture by a british army the pinckney draft was but a leaf blown aside in the tumults of his troubled life but there remains the documentary evidence which madison adduced and the specification of plagiarism which he filed and apart from madison and apart from pinckney there remains the ultimate question which every student of the constitution must desire to have examined and if possible answered what provisions of the constitution were contributed by pinckney end of chapter five